Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of the State of the Nova Nation. I'm Eugene Pei, he's Chris Danziel, and she is Catherine Ryan. Guys, uh, welcome to the 100th episode. No pressure, because I also just found out that this was our 100th episode, literally about five minutes before recording. <laughs> well, congratulations. I'm surprised you guys made it this long. I was just about to say, I'm really <laughs> shocked we actually got through 100 episodes and people haven't killed us yet. I'm, I'm proud of everyone. Thank you for keeping us along. <laughs> it's unofficially our 100th episode. It is technically, but if you look on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, it'll only say 99. The reason being is our post-Wisconsin 2017 NCAA tournament episode, like the end of the season one, for some reason, got magically erased when we transferred servers. The explicit language? They had to take it down? No, it, it just didn't go. It just disappeared. For the best. You yeah. got rid of it to get rid of the, the bad vibes from <laughs> next year. We, come on. <laughs> How's everyone doing? Catherine, how you been? It's been a while. I know. I've uh, been busy at work. The end of the year is always tough, but now that January started, I feel like uh, I've been reborn. So hopefully I can get more previews out. Obviously, I know everyone loves my previews, so need to keep pumping those out and more time, obviously, to devote to preparing and appearing on this podcast. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought you were in like witness protection or someone had to hit out for you, <laughs> Todd or a young buck or somebody. That would have been far preferable to working the hours that I was working in December, but now I'm free. Just like JQ. Yes, exactly. Free jelly, free Catler. <laughs> so over the weekend, we had a nice win on the road at Omaha. Never an easy place to play, especially that first half was just a giant slugfest. Nova came out on top. They won 90 to 78 at the CHI Health Center. Big games from Phil Booth, 28 points. Eric Pascal also cashing in with 21. Colin Gillespie with 14. Jeremy Samuels with 13. Just a nice overall game. And we also just had another dominant Phil Booth show, especially at the end. What were your guys' impression of the Cats in this one? Another nice win. Still undefeated in Big East play. Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably one of the games that I felt more, I guess, more confident about the direction everything seems to be moving. For the other games, you saw glimpses of players or certain systems starting to look like it was coming together. But this game actually seemed like two decent halves strung together. I was actually thinking when I was watching the game, and the first half we were sort of, at least for the first part of the first half, 
they're sort of within eight, uh, you know, like eight, six points. And then as we would get closer, they'd, you know, drop a few more. And then we were back down by four, back down by six. But it didn't feel like one of those first half deficits where we weren't playing well. I thought a lot of things were looking good and everyone seemed to be taking good shots. And I felt sort of confident that if we could keep it close to get to the second half, that the shots would start falling. And, you know, it didn't seem like one of those 12 point deficits that we've come used to seeing in the first half now. So that, I think that was surprising. I know it was an early start. That's a tough place to play. Uh, I think part of it might have been Jay sort of getting a little bit more creative with the starters. He obviously distributed the minutes a little different this time around, or he's sort of been trending in that direction recently. But I thought the energy right at tip was was pretty good. And even though Creighton sort of came out hot in the first half, especially from deep, we were able to keep it close enough to just pull away in the second half. Yeah, I did like the, the fact that he did switch up the starting lineup. And I remember a lot of a lot of people have been claim, clamoring for the switch up in the starting lineup because of how bad the team has started at the beginning of these games. But we, we got the same bad start, which you know sucks. But obviously, I felt the same way, Catherine. It never really felt like it was out of reach the entire game. Um, and I got to give props to the, the second half defense. The fact that they were able to adjust on the fly there and really shut down Alexander after pretty much he destroy them in the first half and crample too it was a pretty impressive job by defense that's kind of been the the problem all year I felt like yeah and I think you're also seeing the offense sort of come together a little bit better in terms of the ball movement people getting involved I mean you saw Gillespie Booth Pascal all being able to just do catch and shoot threes which I think is how the offense you know going forward can get more of these players involved I mean obviously we want Joe Cremo to be one of those players that can just you know catch and shoot he doesn't seem to be there right now and obviously <laughs> the blog is devoted probably the last week and a half to discussing the, you know, the merits of Joe Cremo and what he brings and what needs to be in place for him to be successful. But I just thought the ball movement in general um, with Jay sort of distributing the minutes a little differently, Quinterly obviously getting more minutes. I mean, I just think the offense looks night and day from what it looked earlier this season. You just see people being more confident, getting more, uh, more open shots. They're square to the basket. It's not so much this, you know, chuck and duck, taking three guys to the rim. Everything just seems to be trending in the right direction from the offensive standpoint. And I think as Jay sort of hammers out what his lineups are going to look like, I think it's really only going to get better. Yeah, I love your point about the the ball movement, and you can see it in the stats too. I mean, Phil Booth keeps saying, oh, he's playing hero ball and whatever, but he had seven assists, and you don't mm-hmm. really get that from a guy playing hero ball. Gillespie had five. Uh, Pascal had three. Cremo even had three. So, yeah, the, the ball movement is definitely more noticeable, and it's not – this offense is certainly not as stagnant as it was the, at least at the beginning of the uh, – Yeah, you're just, not, you're just not seeing that sort of, like, iso ball from the top of the key, taking – you know, putting your head down, taking three guys in to just try to get a shot up. I mean, that sort of, like, desperation play, which yielded some of the criticism about how certain people were playing – that just doesn't seem to be here anymore because now we're, we're doing the extra kick. People are moving without the ball um, and people are getting good shots. So the, the idea that Pascal and Booth have to, you know, basically just put the team on their shoulders, it's not so much a necessity, but a luxury at this point. And, you know, the past few games, they've both stepped up, obviously, not just, you know, point wise and putting up big numbers, but just efficiently and playing smart and not sort of, yeah, I mean, I, I hesitate to use hero ball only because they're they're putting up big numbers now, and I just don't feel like they're playing that way anymore. But in you know earlier in the year, you just felt like they were trying to do too much. They were trying to, you know, just force the issue, and that just isn't happening anymore. So if Phil Booth wants to drop twenty eight points a game playing the way he's playing right now, I'm totally fine with hero ball. Oh, definitely, definitely, and also you know with the other previous starting lineups or the other different combinations that we've seen in the past, the ones that have given up those slow starts. With this lineup, 
it seemed a lot more smooth. The offense looked a lot less clunky, which is what you guys have been saying. Just the way that they were moving the ball around. You saw 20 assists overall for the game on 31 made shots. The team just looked a lot better. And I think that's why I felt so confident with this game that even though Crane was shooting the lights out, right from the get-go, you could see that this Villanova offense was just operating so smoothly that once they started clamping down on defense, keying in on Alexander and Crample, that the game was going to turn in the second half. And that's exactly what happened. It also helped that we got a few highlights along the way from Phil Booth shooting from Steph Curry range, Jermaine Samuels throwing the hammer down, Eric Pascal dropping a bomb off that alley-oop from Gillespie. It was just a great, great finish. Yeah. I mean, all those, I mean, the Jermaine uh, Samuels, you know, them getting on the ground and getting the, the loose ball and you know, Booth having the confidence to let that fly. I mean, uh, earlier in the year, he would have gotten crucified for something like that, just the way that the offense was playing. But now, you know, where I'm in favor of a heat check every now and then. And, you know, the Pascal play, the Gillespie um, alley-oop to Pascal, I mean, all that is a side effect of good ball movement, people moving without the ball and people being able to read each other, be more confident. You know, the announcers made a point about how Booth and Pascal are just playing you know, they're basically reading each other's minds at this point and getting in exactly the right position. And then that's sort of what needs to develop over the year. And there's so many new pieces coming into play that that's only going to get better from game to game. And I think you're starting to see that pay dividends on offense. I like the fact that that Pascal alley, the immediate reaction by the Creighton fans was just for them to leave. <laughs> that, was, that was them throwing in the towel. You, they, the, I think the next shot on TV was actually that old fans heading for the next. That was pretty cool. More of that. Big fan of that. Literally sucked the souls out of everyone in that arena. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty quiet in there. You, even uh, the announcers were picking up on that too. It, it was very quiet compared to what it usually is, sounds like in there. It reminded me of the Villanova teams of the past where they just slowly, you know, eat away at your soul and it's like the slow burn mm-hmm. and you look up and you're down by 12. <laughs> yeah. With two minutes left and it's like, Oh, yep. well it's over. Yeah. They yeah. seemed closer, but no. Yeah, yeah. No, I will give it a Creighton though. In the first half, especially I was like, Ooh, number one, efficient field goal percentage, top six offense in the country. Wow. This is a beauty. I, I just love the way that they were moving the ball around. Tyshawn Alexander was an absolute gamer. Mark Crample, you had him, Bullying people down low, flexing, and then he got his. He got his later on. He got his later on. But I'll give it to them. You know, this was a very low key, tough Creighton team, just mm-hmm. with the way that they can shoot the ball and the way that they could score and move it at will. I mean, Crample was obviously like a, a challenge for us down low. I think he was just bodying people, and we didn't really have anyone down there to really neutralize him. And then I think you just saw. I mean, they. I mean, Creighton shot forty percent from three. A lot, most of that being in the first half, just that sort of like onslaught uh, that Villanova was able to weather. But yeah, I mean, that was they were they're a solid team. I think it's tough to play there on the road, um, and I just think that was a decent matchup for Villanova. You know, that wasn't going to be an easy game, and and Crample provide some challenges down low that I don't think Villanova's lineup is necessarily, at least at this point, completely equipped to handle. So to be able to, you know, keep him, I think he had 14 points. I mean, I mean, that's respectable for him. Like you said, Alexander went off, but, but everyone else was pretty much kept in check, which I think is a testament to Villanova's improving defense. For sure. And I, I guess when we were like previewing the game last episode, I, I didn't realize how much they don't have on, on the bench, like at all. I guess mm-hmm. I guess the Apperson injury kind of screwed them with with that whole thing, but still, like you only got twenty minutes off your bench. Yeah, that's pretty bad. And like I know Bishop came in three of three, put up seven, but 
still. They, they have nothing off the bench. So it's literally starters or nothing. And we're the ones complaining about minute distribution. I mean, a lot of teams are have like terrible mis- mis- minute distribution just because they don't have any depth. We saw with St. John's last week and now Creighton. Yeah, and I mean, as the season goes along, that those games are going to be tougher to weather. And I, I mean, there were points in the game where you just sort of saw that they were running out of gas. You know, that they just couldn't get up and down the floor with Villanova, who was able to sort of, you know, run in that seven-man rotation and just get a lot more fresh legs in and out, which I think by the end of the uh, first half, starting of the second half, you saw Creighton start to fade a little bit. And I just think against certain teams, that's that's going to spell the end for them. So moving forward, do you think that this starting five, do you think that this is now it? Have we found it? Uh, I think the question is, should this be it? Do I think this is it? Yes. Should it be it? I'm, I'm not sure. But better than it was before, I think it's only going to get better. So I'm willing to sort of ride this out. I would like to see Quinterly get more minutes. And I think I would... You know, just like to see him and Gillespie maybe play the same amount. Uh, you still got Gillespie playing, you know, almost 15 minutes more than Quinterly. And I think as the season goes along, I'd like to maybe see that even out. But do I have an issue with Gillespie starting or even getting more minutes than Quinterly? Not exactly, but I would still like to see Quinterly's minutes, whether that's as a starter or coming off the bench, improve. But I do see, I do think you're starting to see Cosby Roundtree and Cremo maybe start to creep towards the outside of that rotation and may not be a huge factor going forward. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I, I'm, I'm fine with this starting lineup. I'm abs- I like it a lot more than what is, they've been using in the past. But I, I would like just to see Quinterly in there just once. Just try it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, know, I know we're not really at the point now where it's experimental, where we can't really be experimenting anymore. We kind of have to pick something and, and stick with it. But I just like to try it just to see. And I know it would probably be hard to bench Gillespie, especially after he, the way he played this game. But still, I, I just want to see how it'll look. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at this game, and I'm not going to attribute it all to Quinterly, but I'll attribute it to I think the, the offense plays differently when they have more fluid ball handlers in the game and whether that's Booth sort of taking on that role for limited plays, Gillespie taking the role on for limited plays, or Quinterly coming in and actually being a true point guard. I mean, you saw Gillespie thrive in that catch-and-shoot situation. That's exactly what we want him to be. I mean, he hit four for seven from deep, and at least three of those off the top of my head we're just catch and shoot, moving without the ball, getting in the right spot, and just letting it go. And I think that's how he's going to be most effective on offense. And I don't know if that's a result of having Quinterly in the game or just having you know the ball handling coming from somewhere else. I just don't know if he's as effective as he can be on offense when he's tasked with doing the majority of the ball handling. So I think even them playing together, you know, at first I was sort of, or I mean, just in general, people were saying that maybe that lineup was a little small if you had Quinterly and Gillespie playing together for extended uh, periods of time. But I think that's how Gillespie's going to get those shots up. And ideally, you start to see that from Primo. I'm not sure he's going to get the minutes going forward to really show that consistently. But, I mean, that's what I see Gillespie putting up, like, 15 points a game, just getting in there, catch and shoot, and just sort of sniping. And I just I just don't know if, if that's necessarily going to be how it is going forward. Yeah, totally all for Gillespie and Booth playing off ball, except for – as we can see, you know, Booth has done a much better job when tasked with the ball, especially just as the season's been going. He's been getting better and better at it. And now he's just playing at a rhythm that's unbelievable. Dude's on fire. But what is going on with Cosby Roundtree? Where has his minutes gone? What Did he do something bad? Did he take someone's sandwich by accident? Where, where is he right now in this rotation? I think you're probably seeing – so I, I like Cosby Roundtree. I think he has a lot of – He's obviously limited offensively in terms of what he can do on his own. 
And I think when you look back to last year, you see him as a complimentary piece on, you know, this all-world offense that really makes players look good. And I don't know if this team's yet at the point where Quasi Roundtree can come in and sort of, you know, cherry pick these baskets. People are, you know, putting them in the right spot or, you know, he's getting, um, he's getting good feeds from like a Jalen Brunson. I mean, like that's not happening right now. So I'm not sure if he can create enough offense on his own to be effective while he's out there. And I think that's probably affecting how he's playing defense. He's not really rebounding. He's, he's made some stupid fouls. He's never in the right position. I mean, it just seems to sort of be this slump that I think is probably stemming from the fact that he's just not really involved on offense because he really can't do anything on his own. He sets that pick at the top of the key, and then he's just out of the play. So, you know, I'm not really sure what you fix first. He, he obviously had great games early in the season where he was sort of making his money on, on the glass and, and playing defense, but I'm just not sure now that we're sort of a few games into this slump what exactly needs to be fixed. But I just think he may be a little too one-dimensional for an offense that's still trying to become more dimensional yeah it, it just seems like he, he kind of seems out of place and i know i've been advocating for him like because everyone like keeps calling him useless and i'm like i don't think he's useless but i mean i i, don't, I just don't know what to do what you got to do with him to like just get him the more minutes like it seems that and I, this could be completely wrong but i feel that a lot of like the, the heavy three-point shooting teams he's just completely neutralized because it seems like especially against Creighton, and even in his limited minutes, it seemed like the, he was always guarding the guy, the ball at the top, and then they would just run around him. And it was it was pretty easy to isolate him on, on the switch. And he's not good at the top of the key. It's, it's pretty apparent. He's got to be low and inside. And that's why, I don't know, I guess it was just the string of opponents in, in Atlantis, or I'm sorry, not Atlantis, in Florida, that he was doing great. And now all of a sudden you bring him out to the top on a switch and he's basically useless. So well, yeah. I, I'm not exactly sure how to, fix that but I guess you got to run zone to keep them down low but I don't know if fairly zone's the way to go yeah I mean I think the main issues with DCR is just given this offense that's sort of looking for a, a more of an identity and now we're trying to move the ball better and we're sort of falling back into what's made us successful in the past but I just think he's not as positionless as you know that would make him more effective here where he could sort of create his own offense if people aren't necessarily finding him in the right positions he's basically neutralized on offense and I just don't think he's as versatile on defense to really be much help if the defense is looking for, you know, trying to get more comfortable, I guess, with these switches and being able to trust the guy behind you and, and make the switches and sort of run this help defense. I just don't think he's versatile enough. And sort of what Chris was saying, all the opposing defense, all the opposing team needs to do is pull him out to the line and he's just basically neutralized for the rest of the play. And I think Jay's sort of seeing that. And I'm not really sure what will fix that. Maybe if the team sort of, continues to develop in these other areas, they can hide him better. But I just think right now he's being exposed. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see if it's just the recent string of opponents just because, you know, with St. John's, they got guys one through five who can pretty much play positionless basketball. And then with Creighton, they have people who can stretch the floor on him or just beat him uh, physically or just be more quick, as you saw with guys like Crample or some of the other stretch bigs that they have that can shoot threes. So maybe that is his problem. We, we've got Xavier coming up. We're going to preview them more in depth on Friday, but they don't seem to have that type of LJ Figueroa type of player that can basically bang with you inside, but also take you outside and just cook from long range. We'll see going forward where DCR's role is going to be in this rotation. The last couple of games have definitely been funny. We got <laughs> Xavier coming up, but we're going to get to that on Thursday's episode. For now, we're just taking a quick look at the polls. Nova's back in it. They're now ranked 22nd 
They're also accompanied by Marquette, who's ranked 15. I'm kind of surprised that they moved all the way up there, but then when you look at how much the polls just got decimated with teams taking L's left and right, maybe it's not that bad of an idea, but they just narrowly survived Creighton. Yeah, that was a pretty crazy game, but that whole ending there. Well, not even it wasn't the ending. It was the way to get to overtime, and then they were able to pull it out in the end. Yeah, that steal on the inbounds, and then base or you had a steal inbound. That was the worst play I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> and then a hack up shot from just not not nearly half court, but it was long enough. They drain it. The weird part about Marquette this year is they're actually playing defense. Oh yeah, they're not even yeah they're not even like guns blazing anymore. Like I never I don't even know them anymore. Yeah, this is Wojo's <laughs> best defensive squad ever. <laughs> I mean, you would watch them, and it was like you were literally playing like a YMCA game where everyone was just like chucking up shots and you know going off to get, get Gatorade or whatever when they're supposed to be back on defense. But now they're actually playing defense, so I it's hard for me to predict. I always sort of imagine they'll just eat it at the end of the season because they don't play defense. But now it's a little bit harder to predict because they're actually way more balanced than they have been in the past. At the receiving vote section, you got St. John's, who's fallen out of the poll. They they're now in the middle of the pack. And Seton Hall's also gotten a couple of votes there. So they're climbing on up. Is there so. really anything more St. John's than finally getting attention and then immediately losing to the ball? <laughs> and then losing your starting <laughs> point guard for like who knows how long. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's like poetic. It's like the minute the spotlight was shined on them, everyone's like, St. John's should be ranked. It was like, nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Everyone was clamoring them for to get ranked for like weeks because yeah. of. We're like, oh, well, no, you, the non-con schedule was soft. And then they finally get it. And like, see, guys, we're good. And now, now they're not. <laughs> I, it's going to be a tough rest of the season for them. I That Duke game should be interesting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it does not get easier from here. Down to Duke. Yeah, so we'll see how that goes. So before we move on to questions and pop over the mailbag, we just got a couple of PSAs to announce. Uh, first off, you have until tonight to retweet and follow the SONN pod account on Twitter for a chance to win two tickets to Friday's Villanova Xavier game at the Wells Fargo Center. We are going to randomly select a winner tonight at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That is Tuesday. So if you haven't already, one, go ahead and retweet and follow. And two, if you don't have a Twitter account, go ahead and make one so you have a chance to win. We are going to randomly select a winner once again at 11.59 p.m. So you have some time. In between from when this episode comes out and we will randomly select the winner. So go ahead and do that. Also, we are bringing back the weekly pick'em contest. Each week, we will go through all the Big East games, hopefully pick them correctly. And for every game you can correctly pick, you get one point at the end of the season. Whoever has the most points wins a prize. I'm trying to beat Ryan Bowman. He won it last year, and I'm hoping that he doesn't show me up on my own contest. <laughs> But, yeah, get get on that. Uh, you have until the games tip off tonight so that all your picks for this week will count. Otherwise, if you missed the deadline, we will still take your weekly submission just to know that whatever games had already begun or finished will be forfeited. I will be making the trip to Philly for the Xavier game, not with the contest tickets, but if anyone <laughs> needs extra incentive to enter the contest, I will also be at the game. There you have it. There you have it. So get on it. Get on it. Get on Twitter. Get those Twitter fingers out. <laughs> and then also participate in our weekly Biggie's Pick'em contest. Before we go into the mailbag, uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but Volnova has a, a huge announcement. Very big announcement. <laughs> <laughs> in the Slack chat and View Hoops, we had been hearing about this rumor about a new restaurant bar. 
And I don't know about you guys, but when it finally came out and those pictures came out, I was a little underwhelmed. I was a little underwhelmed. That's wait, a good word for it. Wait, there's there's a restaurant now? Wait, they're opening oh, yeah. a restaurant? There were oh, factories. Yes. Where? It's under the new senior dorms, isn't it? Yes, yes. That's under where the it's dorms? Going. Yes, because nothing says like fine dining experience under senior housing. Oh, wow. It's called the what? Um... The refectory. The refectory, yeah. I mean, I, the last time I heard that word, it was there was a convent attached to my high school, and that's what they called the cafeteria. So if you're looking to create the party atmosphere, they nailed it. Thoughts on it the name? It looks like a hotel bar. Oh, that's exactly what came to mind. I was like, I can't even tell this is a Villanova-like atmosphere based on the pictures that they had. I don't know what type of vibe they're going for because it's supposed to be for students like during the week because it looks like a little upscale for that like it doesn't have like a pub sort of vibe for people to like hang out it looks more of like where you go with your parents on like sunday night <laughs> that's a great way to <laughs> is that like what, is that what they're looking for like is it going to be like cost prohibitive for students to even go anyway like what what's the menu going to be like what's the vibe going to be like is this like actually for students or no it's not it's strictly for students or is it like no i think it's for everybody oh it's for everyone yeah oh. it's gonna be open to the public as well uh, I know Chris Lane had said something along the lines of it was, I guess, thought up to be a potential pregame spot for games at the Pavilion. But like I said, it looks more of like a steakhouse than it does like a sports bar. Yeah, the way it was officially described as is a sophisticated yet casual restaurant. What the hell does that mean? It's supposed to fit up to 300 people, apparently. It's fun, but there's a dress code. <laughs> <laughs> Or Sounds it's like fun. a lower level of the pavilion. <laughs> How long was this in the works for? Do we know? Probably, probably when they planned on building the senior housing. Oh, it was in mind. And I think there were obviously like liquor license arrangements that had to be made. So right. I think they've had it in mind for a little while. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see yeah, it being like a, a bar for people to go to that live in the in the senior housing. Now that like every every seems like every few months another mainline bar bites the dust. Kelly's and Flips and the Grog just owning a monopoly on everybody. Yeah, going strong. Wait, isn't the Grog gone? I thought that was gone. Oh. Are they still kicking? It's still kicking. Will you be going to the refectory? Yeah, definitely. I'm I definitely need to go check it out. <laughs> <laughs> I need to see what's in there. I need to see the decor. I need to see what's on the menu. I need to see the prices. And I need to see the clientele. I'll probably get into that restaurant before I can afford a pavilion ticket. <laughs> yeah, I can totally imagine myself <laughs> driving to Villanova, not even going to the pavilion for a game, but going to a refectory <laughs> and just being like, this will be the closest. The, yeah. Yeah, this will be the far. closest I will get to the pavilion. Exactly. But yeah, Chris, this was part of the $300 million renovation plan. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I don't know. I feel like it's a decent idea. I don't know. I like the idea. It's just yeah. I'm confused as the vibe that they're trying to get here. That yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't see any pictures, but I'll take your guys' word for it. It's set to open in 2020, just in case you're curious. <laughs> I'll oh, be there. We still got to wait. Oh, I thought we got to wait. Oh, we still got a while away, so we will not get to that yet. In the meantime, we will still scheme a way to get into the new pavilion for free and or a discounted <laughs> price. Because uh, those tickets are still, still a little too expensive for me. They dropped a little bit, I noticed, for some of those games. But I'm hoping to not have to give up an arm and a leg to get in. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think I might try to check out a women's game. I think I mentioned that before. And maybe that I can get a look at the stadium without 
having to pay exorbitant prices, especially because I think if you don't have a lower level ticket, you can't even see everything. What? Yeah, the bar is not for everybody. I did not know that. <laughs> I'm sad because I want you know I want to be able to experience about, everything. Look at, look at the pictures though. Like it's not that big. It can't be for the entire like arena. As much as we make fun of it being 6,500 seats, it's still they're not going to be able to fit there. And from everything I've heard from people that have gone, you need a lower level ticket to get into a lot of those premium areas. Oh, well, how do they do that? Well, they have like someone checking your ticket as you approach. Yeah, it's bar. probably like when you go to like a football stadium and you get into like. The different club suites and stuff. Oh, like, like in that. Oh, right. Camp, you were giving your wristband or something. I don't know. I got. Is, it. Has anyone who listens to this podcast ever been to the new pavilion? You should invite someone on to talk about it. How about Nova Dave? Does Nova Dave listen? <laughs> Nova Dave. Nova Dave, are you out there? Nova Dave, if so, please tweet us at S O N M Pod. <laughs> we know you've been waiting to talk about the pavilion. And the seats are too small. I mean, I've read his reviews, but I'd love to hear him answer a few questions. God, I, now now I need to look up his reviews. I'm curious now. Yeah, check out the right after the Michigan game or or the one, was it the Furman game? One of them he was at and wrote a really long review in the comments. We'll totally check that out. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's that time of the day where we pop open the mailbag, answer your questions. We got a bunch here. Some of them are overlapping, but as always, you can tweet us at SONNPod or leave your question in the comments section. It'll find its way to us, and we will talk about it on the show. Feel free to ask us anything. Uh, first up is our guy, Jerry Quinn. He's got a, he's got a few here. Uh, number one, what are our chances of closing out January undefeated in the Big East? So we have Xavier, Butler, Seton Hall, right? I think, I think. DePaul's in there as well. DePaul's the 30th. The 30th of January. January. Okay. Yeah. All right, so DePaul's in there too. Yeah. Uh, finishing undefeated. I would say the, the toughest team there, obviously, I think is Seton Hall. But what I'll say is we're playing Seton Hall at home and we're playing Butler on the road. So would I be surprised if we beat Seton Hall but lost to Butler? No. But I, if, if we win both of those games, I think I'd be surprised. So I'm not sure how good our chances are. I, I, I would expect to go 3-1. and one, But just because Hinkle sort of seems to have Villanova's number and Butler I think is playing a little bit better than everybody thought, they uh, have a couple of few brutal losses in their last few games. But mm-hmm. overall, I think they're better than a lot of people thought they'd be. And Villanova's obviously – um, still trying to get better. So I could see that being a really tough game. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think our chances are good. I mean, I don't think any of these teams are that much better than Villanova. I think it's just, you know, who you get on a certain night. I will say, uh, when I was looking at the schedules a few days ago, uh, Seton Hall's playing us after, like, a 10-day break. So so I'm not sure if that'll impact that game, especially because Seton Hall likes to play at a much quicker pace than Villanova does. Mm. But if Seton Hall's playing on nine days rest, you know, is it rest or rust? We, we debate that all the time. So, That'll be interesting, but it's obviously Villanova's at home, and you would hope to be able to to close that one out. But yeah, I think Butler would probably be the quote unquote trap game. Not much of a trap game, but in terms of which one, I think we we might not be able to pull out. I'd probably go with that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same line of thinking with you, Catherine. I, I think they probably go three and one. I think uh, that Butler game's still a little tough. Like I, like you said, like they've had some bad losses, and they are despite their like slow start. And like you look at the record, one and three in the Big East, but th- yeah, they've had some pretty bad losses along the way. And they have been playing it halfway decent. So I still, I think they'll be Xavier. I think they'll be Seton Hall because it is at home and at the Paul. I mean, the Paul. So uh, that Butler game's a little tricky. So I, I, their chances are good. Sure. They can definitely go into Hinkle and win, but I, I think they'll probably just go three and one that stretch. Yeah. I'm sticking with my gut and I think they go three and one. But if they can get past Butler, if they can get out of Hinkle with a dub, then I think they will go undefeated the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. But I do think that they will lose to the Bulldogs just because Hinkle is, is not a fun place to play 
for Villanova Wildcats. That also answers Jerry's other question, which he said, what of the next four games in January will be the toughest game to win? I would say, if not Butler, then it's definitely Seton Hall. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends what you're looking at because the Xavier and Butler basically play almost as slow as Villanova does. So I think the the vibe of those games are going to be very limited possessions. You know, very basically who's going to execute slightly better on offense. That's sort of where I see those games coming down. Seton Hall, I just see it as being a circus because I think Seton Hall is going to try to push the pace. Villanova doesn't really thrive at that this year. And so it's going to be, can, the Vill- can Villanova's defense slow Seton, down, Seton Hall down enough and their guards who, you know, basically are just going to try to get to the rim for 40 minutes. Can Villanova's defense do enough where Villanova's offense, even if it's not clicking at a, you know, top, top level can just basically close it out because I do think Seton Hall is going to try to push that pace. And I could see that being sort of a track meet, especially given the history between the two teams. I do think that'll be a little chippier. It'll be a little all over the place. The energy is going to be crazy. Uh, whereas I see Xavier and Butler being a little bit more deliberate, but challenging for Villanova. I, I think they'll close out Xavier um, pretty easily, but obviously the challenge with Butler comes with playing on the road. But I just think the games are going to look so different and Villanova is going to have to rely on sort of different players and different aspects of their whole game plan to close out either one of them. And Jerry's last question is, do we think that Samuels is ready to get more minutes or will his PT be based on matchups? A good question. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm liking the way he's playing. I, I'd keep riding him with the, with the hot hand. I mean, he, he seems to be coming into his own a bit. And we were really down on him at the beginning of the year. And he certainly has uh, turned it around. I don't know what, what the spark plug was. But I, I think I think you got to keep giving him the minutes, like regardless of the matchups. Like I know uh, he's kind of like thrived because of the, the whole matchup thing, but I, I think you got to start giving him some ch- new challenges out there to see what you really got in him, and instead of you know kind of sheltering him with uh, favorable matchups. But I, I think he's playing well enough where he deserves it. Yeah, I agree, and I do think the way that we've seen him play in the past and sort of develop. Um, is that he's only going to get better if he's on the court, and we've seen him struggle with the confidence. And I don't—I'd rather him go out there and have a bad game than not play at all. And I'm not sure if that's—I I mean, obviously, I don't know him personally, so I don't know if that's better or worse for him. And I just feel like you have to let these guys get extended minutes and, and sort of work through their mistakes. And if right now he's only useful with certain matchups, I'd like to see him get the minutes to develop to be more versatile and be able to play against different teams. Because I don't really think there's any situation where we can't use a long, athletic you know, rim rocker as he's shown himself to be in, in small samples. I mean, obviously you want him to get to that point where he is playing 30 minutes a game, regardless of the matchup. And I think you only get there if he plays. Samuels definitely needs those opportunities, those minutes on the floor. He's only better as he grows with more confidence. And when he has those big plays, like he did against Providence, like he did against Creighton, that gets him going. And we've seen now just looking where he was at this point last year, very timid, very gun-shy, looked like a deer in the headlights, second-guessed everything. Now he's playing a little more freely, a little more loosely. I'm loving what I see from him. I think he's a great rebounder also, which we could totally take. It seems, though, right now that based on matchups, he seems to be a very big service to Villanova when it comes going against the faster-paced offenses, more athletic teams. It seems to be where he thrives. I think overall he definitely deserves more minutes. He's ready for it. And if he's getting more minutes, that means we're also spreading out the rotation, which is always, always, always a plus. Absolutely. This next question is from Fred Rung. I'm going to defer this one to you guys because I I don't know what this stands for. But uh, does Jay get a good enough tan in OCNJ? I'm I'm assuming that's something in Jersey. Ocean Ocean City? 
Yeah, Jay has a house there. Oh, okay. Never been there. Never been. I have no idea why that's a question. Does Jay get enough tan in Ocean City? Is that the question? Does he get a good enough tan? <laughs> I mean, I love the Jersey Shore. I'm more of an LBI girl myself. But um, if you can get a tan at the Jersey Shore, it's worth it. But I'm not really sure he's doing much in January. Also, he seems to always have this nice glowing tan regardless of the month. So I'm not sure if it's Ocean City or maybe a tanning bed in the backyard. I've also noticed that. I'm like, wow, how is Jay like yeah, he's right like, now in like January or like February? It's lovely. Fred's next question is, seriously, should Joe Cremo shoot himself out of this funk? I feel like we're going to need him somewhere in the Big East tournament or in Big East play. And also, Aaron Thomason, he also doubled down on that question. He just wants to know, what's up with Joe Cremo? He's got the best three-point average on the team, but he hasn't delivered anything during Big East play. What's changed? Is it a funk or is it something else? Catherine, <laughs> wow, this is great. It's great that you came on right now for this show yes. because we've gotten Brendan's side, who's in the <laughs> Cremo camp. In the Slack chat, in the View staff Slack chat, it's a war zone between yes, Joe Cremo, pro and anti-Joe Cremo. I think you're on okay, the other side of the argument. Anti-Joe Cremo is strong. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I would no. not say I'm anti-Joe Cremo. What I will say is that I think Joe Cremo's statistics are a little misleading because the percentage, his shooting percentage doesn't reflect what I think his major issue is. And his major issue is he's got that weird low release and it's not that quick. You couple that with the fact that he's not a great athlete. He's not super quick. So he can't really create space with his feet. And he doesn't have a quick enough release to make shots or take shots, you know, when the defense is bearing down on him. I don't have the statistics, you know, uh, at hand right now. But when I was doing some basic research last week before the Creighton game, uh, when Brendan and I were talking, it was something along the lines of, you know, against top 50 Ken Palm teams, he's basically taken there. I think there were four games total. He took four total threes and didn't make a single one of them. And I think that's not so much reflective that he's not making the shots is that he's not able to get the shots off. And until our offense is working in such a way, like you, you saw sort of against Creighton where more guys were able to stand around the arc and take the, the catch and shoot threes, which I think is ideally where you want Cremo to step in. I just don't think Cremo is going to be able to get the shots off. So if it comes down to whether he's going to be able to shoot him out, shoot himself out of a slump, no, because I don't think he's going to be able to get, you know, good open shots that he can, you know, get off before the defense is on him. And, and I mean, you've seen it. He, he got limited minutes against Creighton, but when he's been playing extended minutes, you see him get the ball, you see the defense, you know, close out. He pump fakes, he goes in, he still can't create enough space. The defense recovers and he passes it. And I think that that's a great way for him to play in terms of what you're expecting from a Villanova basketball player, but that's not his skill set. And we don't really need him out there to just facilitate the ball going around the arc. He's out there to hit threes. So if he can't get them off, you know, his, his offense utility, offensive utility is just so low. I mean, I do think he's got some decent post moves. You've seen it, but I just don't think long-term that's going to be where, you know, he makes his money. So I think until Jay or the team can figure out a way to get him some open shots. I think the ball movement will continue to improve, but unless you can sort of maybe set up something for him, I just don't think he has the individual skill to be able to create enough space and get his shot, which already has a low release oftentimes. So I think that's what's making him ineffective. I do think he has a role on this team, but a lot of pieces need to sort of be in place for him to be able to be used effectively because I just don't think he's skilled enough at this level athletically. Um, to really get his shots on his own. You know, Captain, there was that one play this past weekend that kind of 
basically sum- summarizes what you just said. There was that they had the ball, I believe it was Gillespie uh, along like the near side, and then he passed it to Quinterly, or it was to Bay, and then passed it to Quinterly or Bay, and then they had Cremo in the corner. But he was he was sort of open. There was a defender in the area, but he was open. He could have taken the shot. He could, didn't because, like you said, his shot release is just too long. He, he doesn't have a quick release. So instead he dribbled inside, kicked it out to an open Gillespie who did hit the three. Now, obviously that's a good play because the shot was made, but that goes to show that he can't – he doesn't have that quick enough release and you would think that would have been the perfect shot for him. That's what he's there for. He's there to hit the, the corner three or just an open three, any type of three, like, please. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't, and he had to make up for it, and thankfully he did. But I feel like at the beginning of the year, he he wouldn't have done, like, a, a, a pump fake there and, and drove inside and kicked it out. I feel like he would have either shot it, got blocked, or turned it over, or some, something bad. So I feel like he's he's kind of, you know, deferring and trying to move the ball a little bit more, which is good. But I st- yeah, I agree with you. He's got to he, – they got to create a, a shot for him for sure. And it seems that even when they do, his release just isn't isn't working. Yeah, and I mean, maybe you get to a point where Joe Cremo, quote-unquote, shooting himself out of the slump is taking shots that he maybe isn't comfortable taking because he thinks the defense is closing out too fast or he thinks he's not going to be able to get it off. I mean, maybe he'll, he needs to take some of those shots to find out, you know, he can create enough space when the ball swings around to get the shot off. You know, he's not able to do it off the dribble with the defender in his face, but maybe he can sort of get these shots off that he's otherwise shying away from because he just thinks he can't, uh, or, you know, he doesn't have enough space. And maybe that's what the shooting out of the slump will become, him yeah. sort of forcing the shots. I mean, you see Jay yell at him from the sideline, shoot, 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 because he's just deferring right now. And and if he's going to ultimately defer for the rest of the season, I think he's got to play limited minutes because I just don't think he brings enough else to the floor. But if he's going to try to start, you know, start to take those shots, whether or not they go in or not, we'll have to see. But, you know, he's got to take shots while he's out there. And I'd rather see him go 0 for 5, but, you know, take the shots so we can at least see where we're at. But, you know, we don't really need him out there to just hold the ball for a few minutes until someone else gets around to the other side and then just pass it off. I mean, we just don't need that right now. We need someone to hit threes. I will add one to it. Uh, do you think that he is a liability on defense? What is the state of Joe Cremo's defensive contributions? Very controversial. Brendan, who I don't entirely disagree with on this, Brendan says Joe Cremo's not as bad as he looks and that the defense you know, struggles with help defense anyway, and at least Cremo sort of knows where he's supposed to be going, who's supposed to be guarding, and that at some point um, the help defense is failing, and that's why it looks like Joe Cremo's being isolated. The counter to that, I guess, would be why is help defense become such a necessity? It's such a necessity because Cremo can't stay in front of anybody. I don't think that's unique to Cremo. I think there are, are a number of people on Villanova's defense that are struggling with that. So I'm not going to sort of critique him for things that nobody else is really doing well yet. I think we're moving in the right direction. So maybe he starts to be more of an outlier there. But the defense as a, as a whole is still improving. I just think if he's going to be a defensive liability, whether you believe that or not, that's that comes with the cost-benefit analysis of what he's bringing on offense. If he's not even taking a single three in a game, there is absolutely no reason to have him on defense because either you think he's a liability or you don't. You don't think he's a you know you don't think he's a good defender. You don't think he's a strength on defense. So what's his net contribution to the game if he's not shooting any threes? So to me, the defense is just more of an eyesore considering how little he's bringing on offense at this moment. Do I think if he's hitting four or five you know threes or taking four or five threes a game and, and hitting him at a decent clip 
I can stomach his defense? Absolutely. But right now, it just looks like a net loss when he's out there because he's just not doing anything for us on offense. Yeah, not exactly the biggest fan of him on the defensive end either. It, it always seems that he, he's always in the wrong place at the wrong time, either committing <laughs> a stupid foul underneath for an and one or just late on a switch. And obviously, like you said, like the whole team is guilty of it. But it just seems worse when he's doing it. I don't know why. Maybe because it's he's like the one, like the transfer, and like you know he's not really one of our whatever it may be. But yeah, I agree. If he's not going to shoot threes, why even have him out there? And if he isn't going to do that, I'd rather just have Swider do that, and at least he can like learn a bit on the court. I, I don't know. I'd rather just have Swider play the minutes that he's playing if he's not going to be shooting threes and whatnot. But I, I don't think he, like you said, yeah, he's not as bad as people make him out to be, but I do feel that he is always, like, worst place like, at the wrong time. Uh, Fred, Aaron, I hope that answered your question. But for now, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to the 100th episode of the State of the Nova Nation. If I totally knew this was about to be our 100th episode, could have totally had more fireworks on this. But... <laughs> We really appreciate the support. Like Chris and Catherine said, I did not think we would make it this far. But thank you so much for listening every episode, twice a week. And we really, really appreciate it. We appreciate all the praise that we get, all the feedback we get. You know, it's funny. This all started out as a not-so-good video show. We brought it back on a complete whim as an experiment on this new audio podcast format. We weren't sure how long it was going to go, how long it was going to run, but here we are. We've made it through 100 episodes. We hope to have 100 more, and we just are so thankful for your support. Thank you again for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podomatic, Google Play, or Spotify. You have many, many options. Please check back at viewhoops.com for all your Villanova sports news. We are just continuing to pump out content. We are going to have Xavier preview coming up in the coming days recap of that and of course many other goodies in between please follow the site at view hoops and that's good for twitter and instagram and you can follow me eugene repay at erepay5 and you can follow me chris stanzial at the Stansman on twitter and i'm cm ryan 64 if you would like to follow me Catherine, thank you for coming on fun as always and to everybody else i hope you have a good tuesday